Good morning. The scripture reading this morning will be Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Philippians 2, 5 through 8. And it reads, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, I'm delighted to be with you today, and I'm always very grateful for the presence of everyone. If you're visiting with us, we're happy to have you. It's always a privilege for us to be together. I count it a great joy to worship God, and the Bible says, you know, if he, if we will draw near to him, he will draw near to us, and that's what we're striving to do today. We do not take this privilege for granted. It's an important matter to us. And I hope that we put our heart into it and put our zeal into it, that we've come for this great purpose of worshiping Almighty God. And what a great blessing He has been in our lives. He's blessed us in so many wonderful ways, as you very well know. Happy to be with you and uh, happy that Brother Scott is with us today. And if you hadn't had an opportunity to meet him, I hope that you will. He taught our Bible class this morning and help us understand more about the great work that's being done in India, and we're happy that we can have a part of that. Uh, so our prayers are with you, Scott, and your preaching of the Word of God in that faraway place. Uh, you'll find cards out in the foyer about our gospel meeting, and please take one, and I hope that you'll be reminded of April the 29th, where we will be coming together for our spring gospel meeting. Brother Sam Wilcutt will be speaking for us. He's our invited guest this year, and we're happy about that. Look forward to it. More will be said in the announcements, and I encourage you to listen carefully to the announcements. Then tonight I will uh, continue our series. I uh, started a series a few Sunday nights ago, What I Need to Know About God, and then I followed that up with What I Need to Know About Christ. And now tonight, Lord willing, I'll speak about What I Need to Know About the Holy Spirit. And then after that, I'll speak about what I need to know about the devil. So I hope that you'll be a part of that tonight as we come together at 6. Worship with us as we open up the greatest book in all the world, our Bible, and study what the Bible has in store for us. I would count Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, as one of the most, if not the most profound passage in all the Bible. Because it certainly tells us so much about Jesus. And it tells us about his divine nature. And if we didn't have Philippians chapter 2, particularly verses 5 through 8, there'd be a lot that we didn't know about Jesus Christ. We know a lot about him from the pages of the Bible, but this gives a special insight into the divine nature of the only begotten Son of God. And you and I have visited this passage before, haven't we? With your Bible open, you're looking at Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Isn't that a wonderful thought? That I think the way Jesus would think, that I live the way Jesus lived, that I would talk the way Jesus talked, that I would act 
the way Jesus acted, behave myself in the same way that Jesus behaved himself. What an aspiration to work toward, to be like my Lord and Savior in every aspect of life. There's a part of this verse, though, that I really focused in on today. It's the last portion of that verse, verse 8. Verse 8 says, In being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's what I want to focus on. That death on a cross. Such an important part of New Testament preaching and teaching. New Testament apostles and prophets and teachers would emphasize over and over again the death of Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it's the part and parcel of the preaching of the Apostle Paul. Notice in 1 Corinthians 1, in the verses, verse 18, what he tells us there, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but unto us who are being it is the power of God. Oh, the apostles, they would preach about the cross of Christ, the death of Jesus on the cross. Go down to about verse 22. For Jews demand a sign and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ, how? Crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The cross of Jesus was central to their preaching. They preached it, and that's why we preach it today. The preaching of the cross. Fundamental. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The verses of verses 1 through 4. Important passages with regard to the matter of understanding New Testament Christianity. Now, remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you. Which you receive, which ye stand, in which ye stand, and by which you were being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. The emphasis of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ was central to their thought, central to their preaching. When New Testament preachers went out, they were preaching about the death of Jesus on the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. Why? Why was that so important? Well, the Bible tells us, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and I turn to that verse of Scripture and encourage you to read it with me. The Bible will answer this question for me. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. You see, he wanted to make sure that they weren't caught up in the Greek culture of the day. And he told them, he said, now when I came to you, I didn't come with flowery orientation or oratorical skills. I didn't spend a lot of time in lofty speeches and that kind of thing, which would have been indigenous to the culture of the day in which they were accustomed to that kind of communication. He said, but when I came to you, I didn't come that way. For I decided to know nothing except Jesus Christ and what? And him crucified. 
And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, probably referring to the time when he was in Corinth on the second missionary journey where there was a great deal of persecution and suffering. And he admits, I was there. And it was a time of weakness and fear and much trembling because of the persecution and the pressure that was placed on the traveling evangelist during the day. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You see, the preaching of the cross is central to New Testament preachers and the church of the New Testament because Paul said, your faith is not to be grounded in the wisdom of men, but it is to be grounded in the power of God. And they knew this was a demonstration of the great power of God. The New Testament thought is that Jesus died for my And that demonstrates the great power of God. Now you and I have talked a lot about the love of God as it is expressed on the cross of Jesus. And we've studied a lot of the scripture about the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross and all that that means. But today, I want to preach about and the power of God and how God used that in order to bring people and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God. When you talk about the cross, you're going to see God's power. And you're going to see it revealed from the standpoint of mankind's condition. And mankind, mankind's condition, men and women, are sinners before God, and I see that in a powerful way when I look at the death of Jesus on the cross. One of my favorite old as you would know, would have to be Isaiah chapter 53. We've studied it in detail. We've looked at every word. We've conjugated every verb. We've tried to look at every aspect about that and dig down deep into the divine mind of God to understand as much about the suffering servant and this prophecy about him as we could. But I want to go to Isaiah 53, and with me now, you're reading along, and, and I want you to notice verses five, 4, 5, and 6. Only this time when we go through Isaiah 53, 4, 5, and 6, I want you to understand something about the personal pronouns that are used there. Watch out for them and see what he has reference to. Naturally, he's talking about the suffering of Jesus. He's the suffering servant. You and I have studied that. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us. When I consider the preaching of the cross as done in the New Testament, one thing that I must see is that it is a manifestation of the great power of God to convict me of 
to help me realize where I am in my standing before God. Now, this great suffering and this sacrifice that Isaiah spoke of uh, hundreds of years before the event itself actually takes place in the New Testament age. And then Peter, on the first Pentecost after the resurrection of Christ, is speaking about the very matter, the death of Jesus on the cross. And comes up, well, who crucified Jesus in that regard? And he answers that in about verse 32. And he gives them this, and he gives them this point that they would soon respond to. But I want to read the answer to the question, well, who did all this to him? Who did all this to the suffering servant? And in Acts chapter 2 and 23, this Jesus delivered up a plan and foreknowledge of God. You see, it was not a uh, something that came up arbitrarily or by the spur of the moment in the mind of God. The divine plan of God with regard of dealing with man and his sin was in his mind before the world ever began, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. That's Acts 2 and 23. And so he says to the Jews who are listening to him at the time, you did it. You crucified him. You did it at the hands of lawless men. The hands of lawless men would also include the Romans. The Jews were involved in the crucifixion of the suffering servant, the one who was crushed and bruised for our iniquities. The Romans were involved in that as well. However, though that generation has been dead for many, many years, there is a sense in which Jesus died for you and for me. Romans chapter 3 and 23, all have sinned and have come short of the glory of God. Everybody is involved in this particular matter. And when we look at the cross, we look at our sins. Now that symbol, which we sometimes see out on the side of the road, or maybe it's a piece of jewelry hanging around a young lady's neck, or maybe we'll see it uh, in a building somewhere, that kind of thing. That particular symbol, which is very popular today, meant only one thing in the first century. It meant death. Who put him to death? We're all responsible there. For all of sin and glory of God. When I see the cross and I read about the preaching of the cross in the first century, I read about the power of God. Only God could take an event like that and turn that into my benefit and his glory. There are a number of preachers here today. It's always the case uh, when I speak at the Broadway Church of Christ. There's always a number that are here. I'm grateful for that. I think all these preachers would agree with me. When you really preach about the cross, and you really talk about it and how it applies to our life, it's going to be offensive to people sometimes. Sometimes people will at you. And the reason they will be offended at you is because it really tells them where they are. You see, the Bible has a way of doing that. James 1 and 23, the Bible is like a mirror, a spiritual mirror that we look into it and we see ourselves as God sees us. 
We often look into a physical mirror and we see what we want to see. But when we look into the mirror of God's Word, it offends us sometimes because it really shows us what we're like. And that's what the cross of Jesus does. It shows us what we are really like, how poor and miserable and sinful we are. And that without that cross and my faithful obedience to it, I'm hopeless and I'm helpless. It is God's power to help me see my spiritual condition before God. And the spiritual condition that I have before God is one of a sinner, which I have freely chosen to violate the will of the divine God. I did not live the way he told me. I did not live the way I ought to have lived. I have been guilty of sin. And that is true of every one of us. And when you start preaching about the cross, and when you start applying the matter of the cross, and you start applying it to our lives personally, sometimes people become offended because it's talking about sin, and it's talking about my sin, and it's talking about my condition before God. All have sinned and have come short of the glory of God. Why, when gospel preachers preaching about the cross, why they were put to death by the community. Acts chapter 7, Stephen was put to death because of his preaching about the cross of Christ. They were preaching about the cross of Christ in the times of Nero, Caesar, and Christians were put to death because of it. And it climbs even to greater heights of intensity when you look at the days of Diocletian, uh, Domitian, and people such as that who were Roman emperors who brought great persecution upon the church. It disturbs people, and sometimes it offends people because it really shows us what we're like. We can't hide it. We might can deceive others by it and cover it up, but the cross, when you look at it, is going to tell you who you really are. A sinner before God. That we must come to admit. There's a power there about the preaching of the cross that causes us to see how hopeless we are without God. And if it were not for God, we'd have nothing. We would be nothing. Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 2, we're like the walking dead. Ephesians 2 verse 1. Oh, we're physically alive. Spiritually, we're as dead as we can be. Sometimes, I'll go visit the hospital and folks will be there because of surgery. Surgeries are required. Surgery is an unpleasant thing, isn't it? It's uh, sometimes a necessary thing in order to preserve our life and to make ourselves healthier. We have to go through the surgery. Preaching of the cross is that way. Sometimes it's an unpleasant thing. And it really touches where we live. And we need to cut away and prune away the habits, the preconceived ideas, the practices which we should not have that the cross is focusing on. And it's telling us about our condition. It reveals to us what we don't want to be, and sometimes we find ourselves that way, and we need to do the spiritual surgery necessary to get that out of our lives. And what is it that convinces us of that? 
It's the cross of Jesus Christ. Repentance. We need to repent of the sin. And the cross emphasizes that for me. But I want to notice also, it is God's power. As Paul would say, and New Testament writers would say, because it produces conviction in my heart. To be convicted in heart means to firmly hold to one's belief. Firmly hold it. And then when I see changes because I have this conviction in my heart, I firmly hold to this belief, I'm willing to make the change. But what brought that about? That conviction was brought about because of the preaching of the cross of Jesus and what happened there that day on that Roman hill of Galilee a long, long time ago. You know what I've had to do as a father? As a father, I've had to go to my children from time to time. And I would have to say, look, I'm sorry. I scolded you for that. I made a mistake. Now, I certainly wasn't above scolding or disciplining my children, which I did. I felt like it was a biblical principle to do, and I did it when it was necessary. But sometimes I made a mistake. And I made a mistake. And I'd go to my children and say, look, Daddy made a mistake here. And I apologize for that. What we're going to do is start over here, and we're going to pick up where we left off, and we're going to make sure that we do this and do this right, whatever the problem happened to be. But what made me apologize like that? I was convicted in my heart. I realized I had made and I needed to make a change. I had gone the wrong way, and I needed to do the right thing. It is this cross that produces that in my heart. It produces that kind of conviction inside of me. I've gone the wrong way. I need to change that. I need to do the right thing. Story is told of a young man. I heard the story when I was a young man. It always stuck with me. I don't know anyone involved in it particularly, but I I remember very well the lesson, the sermon that I heard at the time, and it was about a young man who'd gone off in the military service, and his parents uh, warned him about going off in the military service, some of the temptations and the kind of situations he might find himself in, warned him against that. Found himself on leave for lower liberty, whatever it happened to be, I can't recall. Him and his buddies, they were going into an establishment where they really should not have been going into. And as he goes in, he sees a clock on the wall. And he is reminded back home, my mother and my father will be reading the Bible about this time. And he thought, I really can't do this. And so he got out and went his own way and wouldn't go into that establishment. What made a person, I suppose the story is true, I heard it, I don't know, but what would make a person do that? Think about his mother and his father studying the Bible at a certain hour of the day and then prevent him from participating in sin. It's his conviction. Where does conviction like that come from in my heart? How do I get that? The Bible is saying the cross produces conviction in us. And when we really believe it and really accept it and understand what it really means, it can produce great conviction and great faith in our life that will keep us from doing the things that we should not be doing. We understand something of the consequences of sin. 
And there we realize I'm not willing to pay the price. I'm not willing to pay the price for the consequences of sin and therefore I will not do that. What will we do? I referenced Acts a moment ago. I'd like to go back to that. Second chapter of the book of Acts. What a great chapter that is in the pages of the Bible. Paul, Peter's talking about this cross, Jesus dying on the cross. He's preaching to them about what that means. He's preaching to them about the resurrection. He's preaching to them about the kingdom of God. And they get down to about verse 37, and it says, Now when they heard this, this what? Well, when you go back to the... Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. The cross. Now when they heard, they were cut to the heart. The word cut to the heart uh, is a phrase which simply means that Peter ran them through with the truth. It goes back to a short type of sword which a Roman soldier would use in close hand-to-hand combat. And he would take this sword out and when the going really got tough and it really got personal hand-on-hand combat, he'd take this sword out and he'd run his opponent through. And the Bible writer takes that word and he applies it to the thought that Peter was developing with regard to his sermon, and he said, he ran them through. They were pricked in their heart. He took out the sword of truth, and he ran it right down deep into their heart. He produced conviction in them when he started reasoning with them and talking to them about the cross of Jesus. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the what shall we do? Conviction is born in our hearts when we study about the cross and when we read about the cross and when we really believe about the cross as we should. All we understand about the love of God, we understand about the plan of salvation, we understand about love and forgiveness and salvation, what great, great words they are, and great conviction is produced in my heart when I learn what Jesus did for me on that cross. Now that cross, you can talk about the sacrifice of Jesus, great subjects from the Bible, but it demonstrates the power of God to change me, and it produces conviction in my life. That cross makes forgiveness possible for me. Without that cross, Paul would write in Romans 1 and verse 16, isn't this a great verse? He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Paul wasn't ashamed of it. We shouldn't be ashamed of it either. There is a great verse following on that. Verse chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, where he talks about this matter. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. Now, that's another word for forgiveness justified. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And here's a point, verse 2, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace 
in which we stand. And we, in, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And when I read that word access, I get into it this way. This is how I get into it. How is it that I get into this new relationship with Christ? How is it that I get into this fear of grace that God has in store for me? Paul addresses that matter in chapter 6. And I would wish that every person in the sound of my voice this morning would have their Bible open and turn to this great chapter of God's Word, Romans chapter 6. And let's study it just for a brief moment and analyze this great passage of Scripture. Notice what it says. Shall we say then, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Now he's going to answer that question that he posed back up there in chapter 5. How are we going to have access into this grace? Here's the answer to it. Do you not know that all of us, do you see that pronoun there, us? He's including himself in that. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? That's what I'm talking about today. I'm talking about the death. I'm talking about the cross. I'm talking about the preaching of the cross. And he says, now here's the entrance. Here's the way in. Sometimes I'll use the word, the transition step. You can take the transition step from being out of or in this world and now transition from that into Christ, being in Him. And the way you take that transition step, the way you have access into this grace is by being baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into His death? That's how we get the benefits of the death, that we're baptized into Christ. We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death. You notice what happened there? I was buried with Him. That's the only kind of baptism there is in the New Testament. It's not a sprinkling or a pouring. It is an immersion. It is a burial. And when one is buried, just as Christ was buried in the tomb for three days, so I am buried in the likeness of that death in the water of baptism. And he says in verse 4, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. I participate in that death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Do you know what that newness of life means there? That newness of life means forgiveness of sins. And notice how you see down there in verse 18. And having been set free from sin, you become slaves to righteousness. That's a great paragraph there. He says, Know ye not to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants to whom you will obey, whether of sin or death or obedience unto righteousness. Don't you know that if you yield to temptation, you're going to receive the wages of sin, which is death? Don't you know if you... Yield to God, you'll receive the gift of God, which is eternal life. And thanks be to God that you have obeyed that standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. In my Bible, I underline the prepositional phrase, in newness of life. Back in verse 4. And then I underline free from sin in verse 18. 
And I drew a line to connect both of them together. Because newness of life is the same as being made free from sin. Forgiveness. And he says, the way that happens is when I'm baptized into Christ, buried in the and raised up out of the water to live a new life. I'm free from sin. The cross made that possible. There's no other way to do it. Old Testament writers would say, as far as the east is from the west, so has God removed me from my sins and my transgressions. There's no other way to receive except through the obedience to the cross of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 3 and 19. My sins have been there remembered no more. It uses a great word there. They've been blotted out. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 12. God has forgiven me of my rebellion, forgiven me of my trespasses, forgiven me of my sins. Praise God for that and praise God for the preaching of the cross so that I can have forgiveness, God's great power. That's the preaching of the cross. There's another point, though, that the Bible writers make. I don't want to forget it. I don't want to forget it. I have a tendency to forget these things, you know, unless I go back to the Bible over and over again and remind myself of these great passages and study and think and reflect on these great thoughts and topics that the divine mind has revealed for me in the pages of the Scripture. I can forget them if I don't go back and study and reread them. One thing that he taught me, 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, we love him because he first loved us. And the cross of Christ produced in my heart. When I learn what Jesus has done for me and when I learn how important it is that I respond to him out of obedient faith, I learn to love him because of that cross. We love him because of us. It's not because I was so good. It's not because I merited it. It's not because I deserved it. But God still loved me. I tell you what, there are a lot of great Bible passages that talk about the love of God. But, and you can think about John 3.16, and that's a great Bible passage to uh, consider the love of God in my life. But I tell you, one that just really does touch my heart is that Romans chapter 5, 7 and 8. I just don't think there's a stronger passage in the Bible than what we have there in Romans 5, beginning verse 6. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ, what? Died. He died for the ungodly. Now, when he says we were still means we couldn't do anything about this. We could not save ourselves. We could not be so good that we would earn salvation and put God in our debt where he would have to save me. God knew that I needed that, though, and he died. For one will scorn a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. Now, here it is. But God shows his love for us in that while we still sinners, what happened there? Christ died for us. What a great truth.
We love him because he first loved us. Not that because we were so lovable, not because we deserved it, not because we've earned it. We did not. We're in a miserable, pathetic condition whereby we could not save ourselves. You know, people talk about loving Jesus a lot. I hear that a lot. But you know, John chapter 14, I don't hear that so much. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And that sentiment is expressed a number of times in the pages of John and in the pages of the New Testament. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. John was saying in 1 John, we love him because he first loved us. And I hear a lot of people say, oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. But if you really love Jesus, you will show that love by your obedience to Jesus. In fact, it's the only way you can show your love for Christ. Sometimes people say, well, I have such love for Christ in my heart. I, I just, in my mind, I just really love Christ. I really love God. The only way you can show it is to obey Him. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Now, you know what a lot of people out there will tell you that is? When, a, when somebody comes along and says, you really need to obey the Word of God. You really need to understand what the New Testament teaches and respond properly to it. You really need to do that. And you know what they'll call that? They'll call that legalism. That's what they'll call that. You know what Jesus called it? He called it love. If you love me, you keep my commandments. If you really love the Lord. And you can't show that you really love the Lord with this feeling in your heart. And though as important as that may be to you, it doesn't really show anything. Or how much I think about Him in my mind. How much I meditate about Him during the day. If you really love the Lord. You'll obey him. He who loves me will keep my commandments, Jesus said. And that cross teaches me so much about that very important word, love. The power of God's love. And I see the power of God's love when I look at that cross. Let's say on the day of Pentecost, could have been there and observed how that went. What I have is Acts chapter 2, and God saw fit to give that to me, and I read that and study that and learn as much about Acts chapter 2 as I possibly can, but I wish I'd have been there and I'd seen the events, and there's probably these people who are listening to the pe preaching of Peter, and they respond, I want to repent, I want to be baptized, I want to be added to the church, and they... And they're standing and saying, I'm ready to be baptized. I'm ready to obey the gospel of Christ. But there's probably some there who would turn around and walk away and say, no. I'm not willing to repent. And I'm not willing to be baptized. Which one showed their love for Christ more? The one who said, to change my life for what's right. The one who said, yes, I'm willing to be immersed in water for the remission of sins as everything in the New Testament is teaching me that. Yes, I'm willing to do that. Or the one who said, no, 
I'm going to walk away, and I'm not going to obey him. Which one showed their love more? The one who obeys. The one who responds. Because the cross has produced that kind of love in their hearts. And they say yes to Christ. Now this is what Jesus said for us to do. So what are we holding back on? If Jesus said do it, let's do it. Let's out of obedient faith. Repent of our sins. Confess our faith in Jesus Christ. And be baptized into the of our sins. Because of the preaching of the cross, I'm motivated to obey him. And I urge you to do that now. Won't you come? While together we stand and while we sing.